anything over the next 30 minutes and I'll see if I can give an answer. And because it's a large room and because we're trying to record it, you say the question, Scott will repeat it on the mic so everyone gets to hear the question and it gives me time to think as well. Um, so you mentioned before about moving into a new neighbourhood. Mm -hmm. um, suppose you are an existing neighbourhood yep. and um, you haven't done that. Yeah. Um, like I'm sure no one here hasn't done that. Um, suppose that you um, that you've got your neighbours. Do you have any wisdom about what to do with kind of neighbours that you're not new to a neighbourhood? Maybe you've seen it. Maybe you've actually introduced yourself at one point and just forgotten their name. Like, is it just game over and you're like, to move again, or is it like, what do you have any wisdom there for us? Yeah, right? yeah. Um, well, that's happened to us a few times, and that's why we got better and better each time we moved. So, okay, this time we've got to make sure we say hi in the first month. Uh, but obviously, you've got their name, that's not game over, and they've forgotten your name as well. So, that's just normal. So, it's nothing to be too awkward about, and it's not final. Uh, but it, then you just fess up, say, hey, you know, we forgot your name, uh, let, let's start from scratch. Here's our name on a card. And, and sometimes you just go around and say, hey, uh, I know it's been way too long, we should have done this a lot earlier, but we're just going around and say hi to everyone on the street. And you, you have a gift. So, so our standard gift was a card and a beer. So no one is unhappy to say hi to you, if they, and, I, and I'm going to give you a card and a beer. Uh, if they don't do beer, then like, they might be Muslim or something, then nuts or fruits or, or something like that, or coffee or flowers. But no one says no to a twenty to forty dollar present, and that, that's basically what you invest in. They realise, okay, this is more than a token gift. And then every Easter, you go around with Easter eggs, and, you know, and, and every Christmas we give a bottle of wine to everyone. And that's not a big investment. You buy a carton of twelve for like eighty bucks, so they say it's ten bucks a bottle. And then we just give a bottle of wine every Christmas. Uh, it's, that's our standard thing. And every now and then we say to all the neighbours, hey, uh, let's Friday night, let's have a Let's have pizza at our place. And pizza's easy because there's no cooking, there's no showing off, there's no washing up. And you get them in the backyard, everyone sits in the backyard, we have a pizza. So we've done that a few times. For Halloween, we just had a, 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 a drinks party on our front lawn and the neighbours stayed till about 11.30, just the, the other night. So, and even on Friday, uh, the neighbours every now and then just go around with a bottle of wine and a glass. And go around and they catch you in your front lawn. Hey, it's Friday. You know, let's have a let's have a wine. And before you know, everyone comes out. We're we're having drinkies together on, on a Friday afternoon. So I think that so these are just the, the, the easy things. And, and then one Saturday we had a barbecue. We had people over, but then we found a barbecue. You got to work at it and it, it invest time. Whereas pizza feels safe for everyone. They know you didn't put that much effort in, and if they have to reciprocate, they don't have to put that much effort in either. Yes, question. So, when you tell people about Jesus, do you have like a little formula or a little system, like a two way to live that you kind of develop yourself? Or what's your kind of, you know, top three points or four, five, seven, or whatever? How do you go about the, the actual sort of standard gospel presentation? Yeah, have so you your own I have no formula, I have no method. And for some of us who are method driven, that's highly like, threatening. For others who are who are more organic like me, that's just highly encouraging. It's not about a method. And maybe several things to take away from tonight. Evangelism isn't about a method. So typically we thought of evangelism the same way we think, oh, I've got to get fit. So you know, you make a New Year's resolution, I've got to get fit, and I'm going to tell my friends about Jesus. And I'm going to get fit by adding something to my life. So I'm going to add a morning run, for example. I'm going to add gym membership. And it's just unsustainable. 
because if you want to get fit, you need a lifestyle change. You need a DNA change. You need to start a new lifestyle. And evangelism is the same. We think, oh, okay, it's something I need to tap onto my life. Maybe it's an event I can invite my friends to. Maybe there's a chance where I can pull out a tract during morning tea at work and that I'm adding to my life. But what I'm showing, no, evangelism is actually a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle change. We have to just change our DNA, change the way we live. Same way when we get fit, it's a lifestyle change. Evangelism is a lifestyle change. And that's on a micro one-to-one personal level. And churches now need to change their DNA. So we've been all brought up with this idea of church being sacred space where Christians gather. So this is holy, this is for Christians, non-Christians, you're out there. But more and more we understand that the design of church, right from the beginning of the Bible and the New Testament, is for both non-Christians and Christians. It's where you merge universes, even in church space. So 1 Corinthians, it's very, um, very clear on how we're to run our church services. Why? And the rationale was so the non-Christian can understand what's going on. That's why we need order and not chaos and only one person speaking at a time. So the non-Christian can understand the prophecies and say, Oh, the Lord is here among you. So we've got to run our churches in such a way that non-Christians can come. So typically what happens is we put events on, and events are good, okay? I'm not saying events are bad, but it's a lifestyle change, DNA change. Typically we put an event on and we say, you've got to bring your non-Christian friends to this. And all the Christians at church think, well, if it was anything like today, I'm not bringing a non-Christian friend. And so what happens is we think there's a special event where non-Christians can come to it. But the rest of the time, this is for Christians' only holy space. But Tim Keller says we've got to run every bit of church as if non-Christians are there. And so you move your Christians to what he calls the McDonald's moment. The McDonald's moment in McDonald's is the person behind the counter says, can I help you? That's a key interface moment between you and the customer. The McDonald's moment for church is it's got to be a key moment where because of the way church was run, the person sitting in the pew goes, oh, I should have brought my friend to that. Today would have been perfect. So where people are just kicking themselves, like, today would have been perfect. My brother would have loved this or my friend would have loved this. Oh, my father will love this. I should have brought a friend today. So if you're in any form of church where you say preaching, singing, praying, leading service, whatever, run everything as if your non-Christian friend is sitting in the front row. Your tone will change. Your content will change. Everything's still gospel-based. Uh, and, and the Christian's still being edified by the gospel. But the non-Christian will be able to say, oh, that's why Christians do what they do because of the good news about Jesus. But in such a way that the tone isn't threatening, but safe and welcoming and empathetic. And people start bringing their friends. So that's the one. So if you could just simplify all the KPIs at church to this, you simplify all your mission vision statements to this one statement, and this is what we did at our church, run church in such a way that people leave thinking, I should have brought a friend today. Why didn't I bring a friend today? Change that to your DNA and make it a space where universes can merge. Alright. One other thing, there was a question about technique. One thing that has deliberately changed for me is this. Paul Hibbert, who's a missiologist, anthropologist, unfortunately dead now, but has lots of useful insights. How do we communicate sin? How do we communicate sin to our non-Christian friends? The problem with sin is this. When we say sin, that's not what they hear. They hear something completely different. For example, Spufford, in his book Unapologetic, this is a fascinating book because he's a writer who became a Christian, 
rather than a Christian who tried to become a writer. So it's really easy to read. And, and he's deliberately written it for his non-Christian friends to try to explain why he's become a Christian. So if you want to get under the skin of a non-Christian, read this book. You're not going to agree with everything. So right now I'm going to red flag at you and say, uh, I didn't agree with every chapter, fine. Okay, I can already tell you which chapters you won't agree with. But... Good to read, to get under the skin of a non-Christian. He says when we say sin, a non-Christian isn't hearing sin. Just like words change meanings over time, sin has changed meanings. They're hearing chocolate, lingeries and ice cream when you say sin. Uh, forbidden pleasures that have a little nervous giggle about. That's what sin means. So we need different words for sin. Interestingly, Jesus, in a lot of his parables, doesn't use the word sin. Have you noticed? So the rich fool, he doesn't mention sin. To the woman of the world, he doesn't mention sin. So he uses stories to explain the concept without needing the word sin. So we too as Christians can explain sin without using the word sin. Now, there's three main ways, according to Paul Hibbert, that cultures understand sin. One is, I'm guilty, I've broken a law, so I need to be forgiven. Number two is, I have shame dishonour so I need faith I need restoration number three I'm unclean so I need to be pure I need to be clean I need to be holy so there's three main ways all cultures of the world understand sin this has been the typical modern western way it goes all the way back to Luther who felt the guilt of his sin went to St. Peter's Basilica kissed every step as he crawled up got to the top and realised oh I still, don't feel, I still don't feel forgiven. I'm still guilty. And that's when he discovered that in the gospel, he was forgiven by what Jesus did. So we typically, that's how we communicate sin. You've broken a law, you're guilty, you need forgiveness, that's fine. Uh, but the postmodern person isn't hearing that. The postmodern person is hearing uh, laws are man-made, and now you are typical of all religions by trying to put more laws upon me, when really I just need to be free, live my life my way, be authentic, have the braveness courage and authenticity to just be who I am and not what organised religion tells me. So it has very little traction, I think, in postmodern Australia. What I found has had traction, so if I try to say to someone, you know, according to the Bible, we've sinned, we're guilty, we've broken the law, they just roll their eyes, that has no traction. But if I start using this language, because I think we're post-Western, postmodern, we all have shame in our lives. We've all done things that have dishonoured those we love. Some have no there's traction. People go a little bit quiet, they feel it, they feel like shame in my life. We all need faith and restoration. Interesting in the Bible, one of the key blessings is may the Lord bless you, keeping you and make his face shine upon you. That's a key salvation blessing. So I, one time I had to communicate the gospel at a state of origin men's rugby night. Okay. And so I said, okay, three things we learn from rugby. Number one, men do stupid things like rugby. But number two, all men have found a way to shame those they love. Oh, the room goes quiet. And interestingly, it happens in professional sports. They tell professional sports people, hey, you know, don't do sex, drugs, and rock and roll because you're doing something wrong. You're guilty. It has no traction on professional sports people. They say, well, they're just human-made laws. I'm my own person. I'm a pro sports person. Who are you to tell me what to do? Instead, have you noticed what they start saying? If you do those things, you bring the game into... Disrepute. So language just shame, dishonor. You shame the code. You shame your tribe, your friends. Now they have traction. Toronto had a, no, no, Vancouver recently had a riot. So they had a shame page where you could upload photos of the rioters to shame them. 
So then now we feel shame. So that's one of the things I've used to communicate the gospel. Uh, instead of trying to use the word sin and rebel all the time, which seems to not have the traction it once did 20 or 30 years ago. But I say, you know, um, I think we all have shame in our lives and we've even shamed God and we need ultimately God to restore the relationship that we once had. Tim Keller likes to go with the, um, you're, you're a slave and now you need freedom. Unfortunately, I don't think we use the word slave. It's got too many other meanings. So I talk about how we've been owned by whatever we live for, or now we have to die for whatever we live for. We all have to live for something, others got nothing to live for, but whatever we're living for now owns us and asks us to even die for it. And so we end up working longer hours, we have a mortgage to pay off, we all need a trophy family, and the family has to die for our dreams, and we have to die for our own dreams. Whew, we need someone to set us free from this. Someone else to live for, someone who dies for us, rather than us having to die for, for freedom. So, so there are different metaphors I think we can use. So not so much different methods, but different metaphors we can use in communicating the gospel. And as I'm trying to communicate, it's not so much a method of evangelism, it's a lifestyle change. The way we do friendship and be a neighbour has to change. I'm just wondering, not all of us are good, active listeners, um, and uh, I guess part of the reason for that, maybe because we don't have the technique, but part Mm -hmm. of the reason I think deep down might be that we don't feel the need to listen to other people, and so I guess from a Christian perspective, we believe what we believe and we we believe the truth, Um, but then sometimes being an active listener to hear other people's experience and how they've come to that can sound a bit contrived because it's not as if we're genuinely interested. Do you have any tips or anything anything that can kind of challenge us or to make us think more deeply about that? Well, I think you sort of answered the only question. We have to be genuinely interested. So that's a lifestyle change. It's not a technique. It's not a method. We have to change our own DNA where we're genuinely interested in the other person. So maybe... Uh, so, but, but, okay... Taking this question a little bit further, so what can we do after we're generally interested in another person? For those of us who are married, basically it's everything we're taught in marriage counselling, alright? On what to do, on how to listen to your partner. It's interesting, I used to run marriage, a pre-marital counselling for couples, and we came across it, and I read the book, I was prepping, and I read the chapter on communication. And it was really good. So I said to my wife, hey, we should read this chapter on communication. And she yelled from the end of the house, and why would we need to do that? I said, nothing, it's all right. Forget I even mentioned it. But I also, you know, we we teach couples, you just got to learn to say, I hear you from what I hear you saying. And that takes hard work. And then you rephrase what they're saying to show you've internalized it and synthesized it. From what I hear you're saying, you're saying this, aren't you? Get them to confirm Oh, that must make you feel blank. And you've got to put an emotion there. That shows you heard, understood, and empathise with them. And my own wife said, Oh, if I ever catch you doing that technique on me. <laughs> and I said, Oh, okay, from what I hear you saying. <laughs> so conversations have three layers. I hinted at this when I was talking about the coffee, dinner, gospel sequence. The first layer is interest. So when we talk with someone, the first layer of conversation is we talk about our interests. Then the next layer is we talk about our values, 
what we believe to be right and wrong, good and bad. And then final layer is worldview, our basic view of reality. So typically, because Australians are very private people, most conversations stay in this layer. What did you do on the weekend? Read any good books lately? Did you see any movies? That's a world of interest. So what you can do is, if they feel safe, you give them permission to go into values. Just ask them a why question. So um, why? Why, 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 why do you think you enjoy movies so much? Or why, why do you seem to like sports so much on a weekend? Ask a why question. This will have to reveal values. And if they feel safe, then then gradually you, you can ask them some more questions and you get into a worldview. But it's always about being a very keen listener. And chaplains are taught this. A person will give you three chances to move into the next layer. They will actually drop a hint that they, that they might want you to move one lane in. If you miss it, they do it a second time. If you miss it, they do it a third time. If you miss it the third time, that's it, game's over. They retreat, okay, you're not really listening. So the, the art of listening in a conversation is listen to the cues that they're giving to, to go one step further in, permission to, to go in. Obviously, the longer you have friendships, the longer it takes, because this is where, where friendships will fall apart. Uh, you're safe out here, how blue is the sky? What did you do on the weekend? But it's interesting when you meet strangers, because you're not gonna see the other person ever again, bang, sometimes you get in there in two minutes. So I was on, was on college mission, we had to stop and fill up with petrol. The lady behind the counter asked one of the, the Bible college students, Oh, where are you guys off to? Oh, we're on college mission. Uh, we're helping a local church out. Have you ever gone to church? And then she goes, oh, yeah, um, yeah, I used to go to church, but then bad things happened and the church was very uncaring. Oh, what happened? Oh, my son died in a tractor accident and the people weren't very good in the way they responded. Oh, how did that make you feel? You would have been very hurt. Yes, I'm very hurt. Well, how do you feel about God now? That's what this is the student. So bang, in two minutes, he got right there, and, and then, you know, would you like us to pray for you? Yes, I would love you to pray for me. So, so again, just hearing the cues that the person's allowing you the next way in, in a conversation. Sam, can I just ask, you spoke, you spoke uh, about sort of the process taking two years, three years. Yeah. You know, hearing you sort of tell our tell stories very quickly can sound as though, you know, someone becomes a Christian in five minutes. Uh, why, why do you think it is in Australia that, you know, it takes two, three years before someone actually, um, you know, makes a decision to follow Christ. Oh, I think because it's so much, we're starting so much further back here in the journey of becoming a Christian. So 30, 40 years ago when Billy Graham came and, and preached the gospel in those big open air meetings, uh, most Australians have been church. So what we don't understand now is once upon a time, 20, 30 years ago, every kid went to Sunday school. So every non-Christian parent used to drop their kid off at church on a Sunday because it gave them the Sunday to sleep in. Uh, and so every kid went to Sunday school. Every kid was dumped on some Bible holiday program during school holidays. So everyone had been churched. And so, so everyone's down this end. So Billy Graham comes in at this end. Even 20 or 30 years ago, we were doing campus ministry and two ways to live. I think that was assuming a lot of church background. Now I think people are, are, are here, and so it's just along the journey. So I often flip it around and say, you know, if a J-dub knocks on your door, are you going to become a believer? No, because you're way over here. And that's sort of flipping around. That's how what we're asking our non-Christian friends to do. They're way, way, way over here. Um, yeah, just thinking about the how you tell the story and 
So I, I like how you drew that graph of, um, you know, there's the intro, then there's a mission, and you work out what you need to do, then there's an incline, and then you have the bridge, and something maybe a bit bad happened, and then you resolve. But, I mean, and I'm asked this because uh, applying this to my own story, but I feel like we, what the story that you told, uh, the mission didn't happen to the bridge. So you said that, um, you know, you realised that you weren't perfect. Um, I would kind of view that graph as kind of flat line a bit. Mm -hmm. And then you realised, and then I found Christ, and then that made me uh, to become, to, to start to climb. So I didn't, real, I didn't really see the climb happen uh, until you... Um, maybe you can clarify that for me. Sure. Yeah, so the grit was good, the execution was poor. That's what I'm hearing. <laughs> that one, you would have felt quite alarmed by that, I think. So, let's revisit. Yeah, so, so here's the intro where you introduce your character, what drives you. So that, that's the mission then. So here you're showing how in your life journey you're trying to fulfil that mission. And at this moment you realise you're never going to get the happy ending your way because we've been looking for idolatrous ways along the way to fulfill that mission. So the bridge moment, that's when you show how Jesus is actually supplying the happy ending to the God-given drive that we have here. So this is a legitimate drive we have here, how we fulfill it in illegitimate ways along here, how Jesus now is the legitimate God-given solution to the drive here. And then, and then the resolution. So you're saying, I didn't, I guess I summed up the mission again here. So there might have been a flat line, I might have poorly executed. Well, no, it's just like, um, like I kind of view that it's just like spiritual growth. So mm -hmm. is, is there spiritual growth occurring before you realize that Jesus was the reason for the quest? Yeah, there is. And if you, but I'm just putting it through that grid. So, so the, Point of the bridge moment is a chance to look back, summarise what's gone on before, and, and then also now introduce and summarise the gospel at this moment. So yeah, you can talk about growth along the way if you want, uh, but, but then you really do need something here that really sums it all up here. And that, that takes work, you know, but that's not my story, but that's fine. Uh, but, but all stories can go through a grid. So you think somehow Matthew, Mark, Luke and John same Jesus, same events, found four different ways of putting the events through that grid. And they don't necessarily have to be chronological. They can just be a little bit, bit out. It's just so that the person can follow you. So the easiest way is thinking then there should be two but moments. So, so here I am, but, ba 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 And then, and then there should be a, a second but moment. Maybe that's the way of thinking about it. And so you got to think, and you can have different aspects of you, just like we all have different profiles. We have different profile that we use Facebook, different profile we give our employer, a different profile we might put on, you know, our student profile book. But and then they're all the real you. Just like John gives a different profile of Jesus, Mark gives a different profile. But we're just complex people. But for the sake of the story, we just pick one profile. So I could have gone with a different profile. Like I'm a person who needs purpose and direction in life, that could have been the one here. Uh, Damo Whittingham, who spoke at Kit a few years ago, he was adopted, so right from here he introduced himself as, um, hi, I, am, I was someone adopted to a family, so I never had belonging. 
So my whole life I'm looking for belonging. And then he talks about how here he looked for belonging in the different groups in high school, went on schoolies week, did what everyone around him was doing, he thought this would give me belonging, realised, no, I haven't got it, I haven't got it. And that's when he realised, oh, the Jesus I've been hearing about all along in youth group and Sunday school, he gives me belonging because God will adopt me. So finally I'll have a father, which he never had because he was always a, a, a adopted. And then he talks about the resolution and that. Anyway, it's just something to sit down. So maybe I didn't give a, a great example but it's something we can sit down and think, well, who am I? And this takes about an hour. This, but once we get this one nutted down, the, the rest sort of follows. And you should be able to, admission talk about this, you should have a, a three-sentence version, a one-minute version, a five-minute version, and maybe a 20-minute version. Same story, but, but same movements, but just expand, contract, according to how much time you have. Yes. Oh, well, that might have to be the last question, so can we get a round of, another round of applause? Thank you.